Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Alexis the Midwife. And I'm Becky the Doula. Welcome to Notes from the Mother Box, where we will be having real and frank conversations about the highs and lows of the parenting journey. And if you enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Acast, iTunes and Spotify and follow us over on Instagram. So pop the kettle on, pour yourself a cuppa, get comfy and enjoy this week's episode of Notes from the Mother Box. Today, we are so excited to have the wonderful Illy Morrison join us for a chat. Illy is a mother, midwife, hypnobirthing teacher and positive birth advocate. Illy, thank you so much for joining us today. Alexis has been very excited to have another midwife on the show. Absolutely. Welcome to the show, Illy. Thank you so much. I'm going to kick off by just asking you, what led you to midwifery? Not getting into paediatric nursing, (laughs) Um, which I didn't even really want to do. And... Probably like having to make a decision quite quickly as to what I wanted to do. So it was like, right, well, I've got onto this access course and they're asking me what I want to do. <laughs> oh, crap. Uh, I want to be a midwife. It was like yeah. that. It really, really? was like that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, like, it's not, you know, I always say to people, I'm so sorry. There's no romantic story of like wanting to deliver babies or mm-hmm. anything like that. My yeah. love for the job sort of developed as I was in the job and then working. Um, So it definitely wasn't even like something that I knew I really wanted to do. I did have, if I go through all the things that I wanted to be, um, they all had the same type of theme. They were sort of helping people, working with people, often more marginalised groups. Um, and you know, I was like, right, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to work in women's prisons. Um, I want to, you know, work with, with women who perhaps have been dealt some type of injustice, or Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a social worker or, um, work with victims of domestic violence and things like that. So it all had very like sort of care Mm -hmm. provider themes and midwifery just sort of, I guess was like, okay, let's just give it a go, um, and see how I go. And I know that sounds like such a thing to be like, oh, I just sort of said I'd do it and then I did it. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are so many people that I know who are really struggling to get on the course and who have done every access course and done every voluntary thing and all of those things and are still not getting it. So don't get me wrong. I don't take it for granted um, how easy it is uh, or how difficult it is. Um, But I will say what's for you doesn't miss you. 
So yeah. I'm not going to apologise for that happening <laughs> because yeah. it was clearly something that I was destined to be doing. So I was literally yeah. just thinking that as you were saying it, I was thinking, listening to all the things that you were interested in are the things that I would say knowing you as a midwife now make you such a brilliant midwife so it's like it's already written sometimes isn't it like you were probably always going to do that just Mm. you know but by bringing all that other stuff to it which is amazing yeah Yeah, so I'm always I've never been like particularly clinical and I always say this people they're like what do you mean and I'm like no no I love birth I'm fascinated by it but I'm like my mentors would be like Illy can you stop talking to the patient and actually like midwife and I'm like oh yeah I'm here to do a job um so I've always been more about like I want to know you as an individual and I want to work with you um you know long term so I'm, I like sort of long term building relationships which is probably why labour ward never worked for me. Illy I'm exactly yeah. the same as you so what happened is randomly when I was at university I, was, I did a degree before midwifery and I was doing a um, women's studies uh, course while I was on it and I ended up doing my dissertation on why women are trafficked for prostitution in South Asia it was quite a specific subject how that brought me onto midwifery is so random but it did And interestingly, I ended up working for a specialist team and I was up in London at a big trust um, in their caseloading team for teenage pregnancy. And guess what? I ended up looking after quite a few girls really sadly from Asia who had been trafficked in for the sex industry. Yeah, it kind of did a full loop. (laughs) Yes. And it's so, and I remember in those moments, it, it almost sent shiver up my spine, to be honest with you, because I was like, how has that come? That's full circles happened there. Yeah. For sure. I just think sometimes as well, like it's sort of in the stars, you know, like we, people are positioned in places to lead them to what is sort of destined for them. Um, I knew I didn't want to work clinically, but I was a bit like, I don't know how I'm not going to work clinically and provide an income and still feel sort of fulfilled and touching in with midwifery and women Mm. birthing people. How how can Mm. I do this? Um, And it's all sort of just fallen into place very, very rapidly for me um, without me doing anything to do that. So yeah. as in doing anything more than I would have been doing. Whereas, you know, sometimes we think things are so huge. Like, oh, how am I going to do it? And trying to create plans and whatever. But I think, like I said in the beginning, if it's for you, it doesn't often pass you by, but it comes at a time yeah. when you're ready for it and when it's ready for you. I think definitely in our career I've always found that when things happen organically they're always the right thing they're always things that we really enjoy that are kind of authentic to us whereas if you try and push something it always ends up feeling a bit wonky it's never quite quite right so we've learned to just relax and do do the work (laughs) Becky and I talk about this a lot because obviously I went through the route of midwifery Becky's been a doula for the best part of 20 years and actually Becky started doing midwifery and decided it wasn't for her and became a doula because of the clinical aspect and that's the bureaucracy and the kind of like contemporaneous record keeping and you know all of that side of the guidelines and the protocol litigation totally it was that thing of not being with women you know like being in a job where you're there to be with women and then there's a massive barrier to being with women because there's all the rules and the regulations and the paperwork and the kind of um and I and I just thought actually do you know what I felt like I was able to really support and be with women a lot more in my body work and the and the doula work so um I mean you know we need amazing midwives out there but for me I just kind of I felt a bit like oh it's not not what I wanted to do eventually 
it's funny because I have seen people say, oh, why aren't you working clinically anymore? Or I'm sure you're amazing. And it's like, unfortunately, I can't be amazing in in that situation. And I recognised that quite early, that it's a disservice to women and birthing mm. people if you aren't able to work at full capacity. And it's not for you to sit there and explain to them, well, I've got to do all your notes and I've got to worry about this and I've got to do this and I've got to do this. They don't, in that moment, they don't care. But what they yeah. do notice is when you're not giving your all or when you're not able to or when you're in and out of the room or constantly writing your notes. And those are the things that are noticed. And it's like, right, well, actually, I never came into this to do that. And that is not against anyone who is doing that because mm. we know the system. The three of us know what it is. So, yep. you know, but I think when you aren't able to practice in the way that you want to for everyone's safety and well-being, it's probably best to try and just like rejig it a little bit. We're yeah. adaptable, you know, um, and we make it work however we can. There's a role for everyone as well. And I think that there's, and I'm sure you found this, Illy, that there's a lot of midwives who absolutely their comfort zone and their safe place is being on the label. They love that. They love the You say to them home there. birth and they go, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Totally. So I think it's about just recognising this is because I was always, again, similarly to you, I was like, community is my my place. It's my, it's my home. Community midwife role is where I feel so sort of, comfortable but like you say it's not for everyone as well so and that's yeah. fine so Illy Lex and I always end up over a cuppa sharing birth stories because there are just so many over the years that you you know and it's always nice to chat to another birth worker what's your funniest birth moment to date like have you got any funny birth stories any funny things that happened well I had a, <laughs> I had a woman once and I was early in my pregnancy and I was looking after and they said, yeah, Illy, you've got, you've got that room. And I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. I, I went in and she's on the, on the ball and she's like bouncing away and, and then she's up and she's around and she's doing all these things. And I'm like, whoa, okay, this is a bit, I mean, it's 7.30 in the morning. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm ready for this. Feeling absolutely knackered myself. And um, <laughs> she's, she's quite irate. And I'm trying to talk to her and she keeps going, shh, 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 like this. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And she drank some water and she looked at me and she just spat it on the floor. Oh dear. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, um, okay. And I said to her, I was like, listen, okay, I know you don't feel like you want to hear me. I'm not going to clean that up. <laughs> I was like... I'm pregnant myself. And to be honest, I don't really feel like getting down on the floor and cleaning that up. And she said, I'm not going to clean it up. I was like, oh, well, well, now what do we do? And she was like, well, well, and trying to argue with me. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I feel like I've got a kid. And I was like, well, you know what might happen? (laughs) Thinking, gosh, she's, you know, I said, what might happen is you might slip on that ball and then you'll end up on the floor and then we're all going to be in trouble. And what did she do? She cleaned it up <laughs> and she never spat again. <laughs> and I was oh, like, wow. you're not, you're not in the throes of labor to the point where you are like completely out of control. You are having yeah. a conversation with me right now. And I have every sense of compassion for you, but you've purposely spat that water on the floor thinking that I'm here to clean it up. Wowzers. And I'm not. 
it was just so bizarre. It was such a bizarre thing to do. It was sort of like testing boundaries, you know, let me see what I can do. Yeah. If, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to just clean up behind me or if you're not. And the rest of that labor, she was just like on it. And we had this great relationship. I think it was because we laid, you know, we'd set the tone. It's yeah. like, mm, we're here together to get through this. Mm, but I, yeah. I'm not going to be taken for a bit of an idiot. Definitely. God, that's so tricky. Cause I find like with a, when you're a doula, you work with couples from about five, six months and you do planning and prep and you have, you know, you meet up a couple of times. And so you already know them before they go into labor. And I'm always slightly in awe of midwives because you have to walk in and, and quickly establish a relationship with a complete stranger and scoop them up and hold them and, you know, show compassion. And particularly if they're acting out like that, that's a, that's a very, like, you've got to dig deep, haven't you, to do that? And I think it's just like really finding a balance because you also don't want to be mean or create a distrust or mm. like, you know, it's it's really striking a bit of, I was thinking, how far am I going to take this? Because eventually one of us is going to have to clean up the water. So <laughs> I've got to, I've got to figure it out, you know, how to make sure that I'm not essentially creating a horrible space for this person and you yeah. know, making her not want to be with me. And I think, it's really difficult to do. And there's some people that you just aren't going to gel with. Like it does not matter. Do what you do. It It is just like, nah, uh, we don't, we don't vibe. And then yeah. it just becomes like a bit robotic. You're like, all right, fine. Let's just get, let's just get this done. You know, I'm just going to have to, and that's okay. You know, it's not yeah. a big deal. Um, it can make for a really long shift as I'm sure yeah. Alexis knows, but like, oh, are you, well, I guess you've got that nice, sort of continuity aspect of it where you know from the first meeting if you're not going to gel but like with us it can be complicated and also really don't you think um and we'll talk about this more as we you know over the course of this this episode but I always say when I'm teaching antenatal classes to the women and their partners you know if you don't gel with your midwife say like get one of you go to the nurse's station the partner if you're able to it's I think there's a, a thought that you're sort of stuck with one person and that's the only way it can be but actually we're all different human beings and sometimes like you say they just you just don't like vibe with each other it just doesn't it's not a good fit and actually the birth of a woman is too important to just be polite and sit back and go well the next 12 hours are going to be hideous aren't they you know, and I think as well that's going on our time like you have to value your own time and the energy that you put out and as you know we carry this is a job that you take home so equally why should you have to have a really crappy 12 hours I've had someone say that they didn't want me looking after them because I was black and I was like oh thank god thank you for being really clear about that because I'd rather not expel my energy on someone who is racist so as long as we're clear on that that's fine you can have someone else and I remember one of the other girls saying, no, well, they should have to stick with you. I said, why should I have to be going through that? Yes. Yeah, I was going to say that's harder for you, isn't it? Like in a way, yeah. like, no, no, thank you. So it's like, do you know what? It's for the best that we just give them what they want because their birth is, is important. You know, it's sad that those are the things that they'll pass on to their children and all the rest of it and that that's their mentality. But it isn't for me to, mm. in this sort of vulnerable moment, to try and like make her not racist like that's not my job or to take any abuse from someone who doesn't respect me in any way shape or form so I think Mm. 
it's 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 such a two-way street and we in that sort of nhs martyrdom way we don't recognize that like our well-being is really valid and really important as well as the people that we're looking after and so yeah you know if it's not gelling for either of you you can say as well to the midwife in charge do you know what is there anyone yeah. else that could take over that room? Because actually I feel like we're not creating a really good atmosphere. And we know what happens when women are in negative spaces trying to give birth. Yeah. It can, mm. it, it really doesn't work very well. So, you know, yeah, it's just important to preserve our own energy and well-being as well. It's yeah. interesting because every time you talk about maternal burnout, and I know that this is something that Becky and I love that you discuss um, and I think it's so, so important, but there is a little selfish midwife on my shoulder who's obviously, you know, been with me over the last, gosh, I mean, I went into midwifery in 2004, who says, oh my gosh, everything you're saying relates to midwifery burnout as well. Mm. It's, it's well documented. What a strange thing that something so nurturing can be, you know, something that can be so draining of energy. Like, yeah, yeah. it shouldn't feel like that. I feel like we're getting something wrong with that. 100%. And the system is broken. The system is broken. This is from someone who's been in the system and, you know, as a patient and as a, as a worker, the system isn't working. Um, and it needs complete rejigging. I think we move further and further away from being with women and birthing people and further and further into the bureaucracy of it and the legality of it and, it's really a shame. And I know that a lot of trusts are trying to move towards a sort of more woman and birthing person centered approach. But again, they're just met with constant bureaucratic nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, continuity of care teams, yeah, they work, but then you can only do it to this and it only means this and only this person can be involved and only, you know. Mm. Um, and so, unfortunately it does lead to midwife burnout and it leads to you know these things poor starts Mm. poor birth experiences can 100% lead to maternal burnout um Mm. you know a lot of it is is related um yeah you know and I always think sort of the secret of the end is in the beginning type thing you know we should start well Mm. you should start birth well you should start pregnancy well and and, you know in whatever way we can facilitate that Mm. yeah Ilya I can imagine you would have absolutely loved this role I had in family nurse partnership have you heard of it yes I wanted to apply for family nurse partnership (laughs) I did it in London so Lambeth was my area when I was up in working at the trust in London and I did it for a good five years and it was five of the best years of my career and the reason why you're just speaking to me so much of the words you're saying is I booked the girls at 12 weeks and then I worked with them until the babies were two years old and for two and a half years I did home visits every two weeks to see them isn't that what all women should have that's what we should yeah you know it kind of you know it's amazing that that I mean you know don't get me wrong it's absolutely amazing that those girls had that Mm. but I just think that is the best model of maternity care that we can ever produce you know it's amazing it was absolutely brilliant and I'll say when I had my own kids, I thought, where's my family nurse? <laughs> like literally, I think I had different expectations. So actually that takes me on to my next sort of thought really, Ali, just from mm. the other side, because I'd, I'd been a midwife for six years before I had my my son, Toby, my eldest. It's wild experiencing it from the other side, isn't it? When you've been in midwifery for a while and then you have a, 
a baby what was pregnancy and birth like on the other side for you being you know being a a midwife and a mum yeah so my pregnancy and it's funny I only I started writing about it last week Mm. and what's really funny is what comes up what feelings were buried and when you really check in with yourself and you're honest with yourself and you've had time to heal and, you know, those types of things. And you can kind of look back and be like, mm, that wasn't as OK as I as I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had like a very, you know, essentially straightforward pregnancy. Um, I had a, quite a large bleed at 10 weeks. Um, and I remember just going to work that I was still bleeding and I just went to work and I was like, um, you know, freaking out a little bit, but whatever. Knowing that miscarriage is common, um, but that felt like a safe place to be. And my my colleagues rallied around and got me a scan and, you know, all of those things. And she was fine. She was just being the rascal that she is today. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I always say to people, because they say, oh, it must be, it must be good being a midwife a pregnant midwife and I'm like well it's a double-edged sword really you know you you know you know a lot you know too much too a lot much, of the definitely. time and so I remember looking after women and birthing people who came in and said oh I'm bleeding but you know everything's fine or you know or, or not not even meeting women who say, well, I'm 12 weeks now everything's fine I'm past the risky stage and thinking to myself I don't get that I don't get any moment of reassurance and calm because I'm at work and someone's come in at 40 weeks with a stillbirth. So until my baby's in my arms, I don't get that feeling because I know in a very concentrated way, I'm seeing all the time that no pregnancy is 100% sort of safe until that baby is out. Um, So, you know, I didn't, I told people from like six weeks because I thought, well, it could happen at any time. There's no 12 week special time for me. And I think I carried that anxiety throughout my whole pregnancy without really knowing. It probably manifested itself in other ways. And I had this thing called low pape. And it was funny. So I am like, I'm probably the most annoying patient because I just do what I want. Like I was like... (laughs) Low Pape, okay, tell me my numbers. So I I was booked in the trust where I live, but I didn't want to give birth here. But I thought if I'm going to have a home birth, then that's what I'll do. Like, you know, if I'll be at home, it's fine. Um, But I will also book an induction at 42 weeks where I was working in London. And I'll book with them as well. So I'll be booked at both trusts. So then I was like, (laughs) I was just trying to be smart, basically. Um... So I was like, well, that means that I can have a scan here and stuff like when I'm at work and just pop and have a scan and I'm booked here and I trust all the doctors and I know everyone. And, you know, if I need to be induced, my mates can induce me. It's fine. And so where I live, they diagnosed me with low pape. And they were like, yeah, you need to have all these scans and blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, tell me my numbers. So he told me my numbers and it was really like on the cusp of low, like it wasn't really low. And they hadn't taken aspirin and all this stuff. And it was a different... When I went back to work, I went, so they say I've got low pape. Here are my numbers. What do our guidelines say? I said, well, based on our guidelines, you're not, you're not high risk. Like it's not low pape. And I was like, 
I'll go with that one then. Continue taking the aspirin because I had a family history of preeclampsia. But I was like, yeah, it's fine. We just won't tell them. Um, And they wanted to scan me at like 28 weeks, 32 weeks, 36 weeks, and induction at 40 weeks. And I was like, no, because you're making me high risk when I'm not high risk. So I was like, yeah, you know, skirting around it and not going to the scans in Norwich because I was like, I just cancel them. So, you know, before anyone thinks that I was using NHS resources, I would cancel the scans and um, (laughs) not just turn up. And... When I got to my midwife appointment at 34 weeks, so I was on maternity leave and she went to me, you haven't been to your last two scans. I was like, yeah, but I don't need them. She was like, we need to rush to have an emergency scan. I was like, God's sake. Um, So I I managed to skirt around it. I managed to avoid them up until 34 weeks where they caught me and they were like, you need a consultant appointment. And I was just like, oh, whatever. But anyway, long story short, I went to the consultant appointment and I told him that I was having a home birth. And he was like, for someone who has knowledge, um, you should know better than to have a home birth. I was like, hmm? you just said that I had knowledge. Well, let me tell you what the knowledge is. <laughs> the knowledge is that I'm completely safe to have a home birth. I'm risk-free. There is a higher chance of me transferring in, but that's fine. I'm still safe to have as a primate, as a first time mother with a low risk pregnancy, normal BMI, et cetera, et cetera. And he, he turned to my husband and he, and this really annoys me, he turned to my husband and he was like, hmm, I'm going to document here that um, I don't advise her to have a home birth, but if she insists like this, and I was like, I don't know why you're speaking to him, but that's yeah. fine. And um, we're walking out and he says, he turns to my husband again and he says, if she starts acting crazy, bring her in. But then again, you'd be bringing her in every day, wouldn't you? <laughs> no. Really? Like, Outrageous. I was like, God, you're a tosser. And then he said, he finished his little like joking thing. Cause I don't know when he was given the impression that we were friends to the point where we could joke. Yeah. Um, he said, I'll see you when you transfer in. And I went, I'll... I was like, I'll send you pictures of my home birth. And when I transferred in, I thought to myself, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> I hope you're not here. But, you know, that type of thing, and I always speak about it, language and the effects and what that does subconsciously. And I'm someone who went in knowing what they wanted and was still affected by what he said, still worried that if I transferred in, I'd failed in some way or another or proving him right. And, you know, all of that was definitely running through my head about that type of treatment and how we medicalize a situation and take someone who's normal and essentially make them abnormal through fear and a misunderstanding of risk and misunderstanding of statistics and biases and our own opinions influencing what we are advising. Definitely. Like you say, sometimes it's not even what you're saying but the way you're saying it to somebody isn't it because I had a consultant I went really far over with my two um and I had a consultant meeting and the consultant with with my first said to me very gently 
um, just just to make because I was talking about my home birth, my home birth, and she said just to make just to just to kind of double make sure that you're aware that there is a slightly higher chance of transferring in with a first first time mum, but hopefully we won't see you here. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like I think she was just trying to manage my expectations. And I said, oh yeah, no, I know, I know, I'm fine, I, I'm happy to come in if I need to, but I want to start at home. And um, it felt helpful it felt supportive and it it was a similar thing that she was saying but it was said with compassion and care and just as a just so you know but hopefully we won't see you you know so it was sort of quite quite ended quite positively you know you just think you can say it nicely can't you do you know what I mean he um, just sounded like he was being an arse I ended up um, changing I had fertility treatment for my first son because I got PCOS and I ended up having, he was, you know, I had Clomid basically in the end, and ovarian drilling and such like. And I was seeing a doctor close to where I was living in London and it wasn't my trust actually. And I found him so blasé with me considering I was going through the most crazy emotional time of my life. And it's, it's complicated, but, you know, I'd lost my dad. There was a lot going on and a midwife who's going through infertility is not a good profession to be in. And I remember going to an appointment and sitting there and he... um he looked, he was looking at my blood results and he literally, he was staring at the screen and then he saw them and he clapped his hands almost with glee and he went, oh, and I said, what is it? And he said, "Um, your testosterone levels. And he sort of laughed and he went, they are so high. What? And I thought, and I sort of thought to myself, on what planet is that amusing? Like, how can you, if that actually makes me feel quite emotional thinking back and sort of feeling oh, how vulnerable honey. I felt in that moment. And I remember him, I sort of, and I made excuses for it in my head as to why he would say, you know, how he would respond to that. And, you know, that he does this every day and it's, you know, it's, it's his job all the time. And maybe he didn't realise and he was having an insensitive moment. And I thought afterwards, it's just, it wasn't funny. It wasn't no. amusing. I felt so like vulnerable having and also as a woman having really high testosterone levels and going through inf- that was actually preventing me from becoming a mother and I remember after that and I haven't actually done this with anything else in my care but I had to change my doctor because I just thought every time I go and see you it makes me feel just really sense overly sensitive maybe not overly mm. sensitive because it was no. appropriate for me to feel you know a bit you know burned there really yeah, to yeah. be honest and the fact that those emotions still come up now shows how deeply ingrained yes. these things are in us you know they, they stick with us because in when we're in a vulnerable state we cling on to language don't we so i think as well this is 11 years furious. ago what we do is we invalidate our own responses in order to validate mm. them and what they said yeah and it's like nah and i constantly encourage people i'm like you're valid you're valid your feelings are valid yeah actually what the other person said doesn't really matter like really doesn't matter mm. um how you felt mattered because you're at the center of this whole experience so yeah. you know if we if we and i i, I said what happened there and they said well they said this and i guess they were just having a bad no i haven't got time for other people yeah. having a bad day because what that's done to you they've forgotten about it but yeah. you may not mm. and so their bad day in that moment is irrelevant you know, it's not, True. you know, it's, and, and they need to go and deal with their bad day with someone else. And if they need to talk it out and whatever, that's fine. But what your bad day has done has created something that is much more long lasting. Mm. Um, yeah. Not even more to them, but it's much more long lasting than perhaps you even recognised. You know, it's really important, the language that we use, the effects that it has and how we process the effects of that, because by saying actually you were a bit of a, an asshole. So <laughs> yeah, you were. You really were. Yeah. And 
that mm. helps to kind of like take that, that silliness that you may feel or that overreaction. And it says, actually, that was right. I was right to feel like that because actually he was being a dick. Yeah. So what happened next, Illy, after you left the horrible oh, consultant? Well, after that, then I was just like, oh, whatever. Like, I'm still just going to do what I'm going to do. At 39, 39 and six, I'm on my ball and all of a sudden my water's broke. Very, you know, oh, okay, I think there's my waters. If I'm completely honest with you, though, I think they'd actually broken in the morning. But I didn't know, like, it was like, I was like, you know, you, you're always leaking when you're pregnant. And yeah. I remember messaging my friend being like, I just don't know if these are waters or if it's discharged. But anyway, everything feels fine. She's moving. It's fine. There's not lots. So it probably wasn't. I don't know. Anyway, got the gush in the evening. And I called the midwife-led unit and I said, my waters are broken. And she said, well, you know, you're a first-time mum, so you're probably going to have to come in, so let's just book your induction for the morning. And I was like... <sighs> I was like, this language isn't working. Like, <laughs> I've literally just spoken to you and the first thing you're saying to me is how, oh, my plan's probably not going to go right and so let's just book an induction in and you need to come in for monitoring and blah, blah, blah. It's like, anyway, so I remember talking to her and being like, she's like, your contractions still haven't started. I was like, they're going to start in five minutes. I'm, I'm like manifesting this. I'm like, they're going to start in five minutes because I'm not yeah, going to be sitting here like Shrom, like, no, 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 let's go. And so I got off the phone to her and thought, I'm not going to call you back. And I went up and down the stairs four times and there were my contractions. And I had my Clarice Hage go in, had a bit of a snooze, was just like walking continuously. Those contractions didn't stop. And I got the pool ready. And this was about, so at 8, 8 p.m. my waters broke and I called the midwife at 2am and I said oh you, you can come you know if you want whatever got the pool ready and um she comes about 3am so I've been laboring absolutely fine nothing was bothering me I had like my sister-in-law had actually got the coach from London she'd got like the 9pm coach so as soon as my waters broke <laughs> oh, um, amazing. and so she arrived at about midnight and everything's fine so the midwife comes and she says, oh, can I examine you? And I said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And she examines me and she goes, oh, you're seven centimetres. And I went, shut up. And I remember like just crying thinking, I'm not seven. I can't be seven. I don't feel like seven. Like, how's that happened? And then she's still in the cervix at this point. And then she comes out and she goes, oh, no, you're four. And I went, no. I was like, okay, but as long as I'm not two. It's okay. I can handle it. However, my trust in you, I don't think, I always say like to students, don't talk about what's in, what's happening with the cervix until you're out of the cervix. Just because then it's like, you want to be sure and we all make mistakes. So it's not, a, it's not a big deal. But I do think there are a lot of centimetres between four and seven. And so, you know, but it's fine. Powered on. Anyway, I'm back in the pool. She then goes, she says, can I use your toilet? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. She goes to the toilet and she comes back and she goes, I've just been sick in your toilet, so I'm going to have to go. And I went, oh, no. hmm? <laughs> I was like, what? Um, did you did you bring like diarrhea and vomiting into like a labouring person's home? Like, it's just so, it's so like, I was like, this is surreal. 
we all get sick. These things happen, you know, yeah. fine. But now I'm just like, yeah, me and you, it's not really working out, hon. Yeah, it's fine. And they said, oh, um, and she said, she called her boss or whatever. She said, would you mind transferring in? And I was like, no, I'm not transferring in. I'm not progressing that rapidly that by the morning, the other team won't be here. So we've only got one midwife to come out to. I said, it's fine. I don't need more than one midwife. Like everything is fine. Please don't make me move from my home to, um, you know, the midwife at June. And at this point I'm trying to like, really trying to claw back at a bit of like good feeling. And she's like, okay, I'll speak to my boss, whatever. Anyway, so she then says someone's coming out and the woman that came out was just not nice. Like as in just really hacked off at having to have come. She walked into my house and, you know, the first thing she was like, whoa, there are a lot of you here. And I'm like, okay. And then she said, because I'm thinking this is my home. I can have whoever I want here. If they're getting in your way or whatever, then you can speak to us. We're normal, you know, we're kind of like ordinary people who understand what the situation is. So if there's a problem, that's fine. But your comment was unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And she tries to go out of the room to hand over. And I said, oh, you can, you can hand over here. You're only speaking about me. Like, you know, it's fine. And she rolled her eyes at me and I'm thinking, this is so weird. And she didn't introduce herself to anyone. It's It was all like a really bizarre situation. All those things that we are taught not to do, she was doing them. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. She was OP, so she was back to back. And I wasn't progressing from five centimeters. And each time I had a contraction, so they were coupling. So it's one and then another and... It was just agonizing and this midwife sat there in the corner just watching me. And each time I had a contraction, I sort of dived to the bathroom and she'd like shout, oh, slow your breathing down like this. And I was like, I don't even know who you are, like what you're doing here. And then when it got to the point where I was really like losing my marbles, she then tried to do some sort of some techniques which were for sort of malpositioned babies where slightly just moving my bump a little bit, whatever. And I was like, no. No, no, you can't you can't come into my space like this. Like it's, you know, I don't feel confident in you and mm-hmm. I, it's not working. And I just said to her, you can examine me again. And if that doesn't, if I'm still five centimetres, I'm transferring in for pain relief. So I still five centimetres, transferred in, worst journey of my life. Got to the hospital and I had some pethidin, which made me feel great. I was able to sleep a little bit. But after about half an hour, they were hearing some late D cells. So her heart rate was dropping at the end of each contraction. And so she says, we're going to have to transfer to the delivery suite. And I was like, oh, God's sake. And, you know, midwife to midwife and even doulas, we've seen those series of events. We know what this means. And I I said to my sister, no, I'm going to have a section, by the way. And she went, don't give up. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going to have a section. I can, I know what this is. And... I get to the delivery suite and this doctor walks in and she says, so 
we think that you need to, um, to start the hormone drip because you're not progressing. And I was working at a trust that is very hot on CTGs. So very hot on fetal monitoring, lots of training around fetal monitoring. And I remember looking at her like she's absolutely absurd, thinking she's having lates, like she's having, her heart rate is dropping. She's clearly under a little bit of stress and you want to put more stress on her. Again, my trust in this place is like, it's, it's like, now I'm just like, this is a stupid choice. Like, no, it's not happening. And I said to her, no, I'm not going to start the hormone drip. She looked at me like this and she was like, well, that's our advice. And I said, well, that's fine, but I'm not going to, you know, I don't think it's the right thing to do right now. And she walks out the room, she slams the door and she comes back after about five minutes and she says, well, um, here's, here's what we're going to do. In three hours, you will be 12 hours post waters breaking and we'll start the hormone drip. And I was like, no, I was like, we'll have done the section by then. But say what you want. The way you're speaking to me is not right, but that's fine. And so she walks out. Anyway, long story short, I start having, we have a, like a prolonged detail. So her heart rate goes down for a while. Mm-hmm. And where I was working, we don't really do anything until like three minutes. And then we're starting sort of like turning on the left side. And then after like six minutes, we now want all the doctors in. And, you know, it's, diff- it's a different yeah. procedure. Anyway, so heart rate's gone down and midwife says, I'm going to ring the emergency buzzer. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. Ring the emergency buzzer. Everyone's going to come charging in. I was like, that's fine. With two minutes with her heart rate at around 70. With a normal heart rate should be anything sort of like 110 to 160. So I'm like, okay. I'm, I'm not worried. <laughs> I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. And um, everyone comes running in the room. And I remember this guy putting a cannula in my arm, like like in the crease of my elbow and there's blood going everywhere. And I was just looking at him like he was ridiculous, thinking, why, what are you doing? Like yeah. one, as midwife, I'm going, why wasn't I cannulated before? Why have I got no fluids up? Why are you trying to put this in the crook of my elbow? Like, what are you doing? And he's like freaking out because yeah. blood's going everywhere. I think he was quite junior and he was just like, man, she's looking at me like I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and... The doctor rushes in and he goes, category one section. And I was like, shut up. I was like, you're not putting me to sleep. Like, it's not happening. Because obviously that means that my husband couldn't be with me. I was like, I'm not going from home birth to general anaesthetic cesarean. Like, no, 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 no. And I remember saying to them, I was like, no. I said, no, it's not happening. Her heart rate's going to come back up. It's going to come back up. And they're like, because obviously from like, you know, a physiological point of view, it's like, heart rates don't just sink to the floor and that's it. Like you would have had like warnings and warnings and they do recover and they go down and they recover. It takes, you know, you. it's not that immediate thing. Mm. And knowing that in other trusts, they did other protocols. I was like, no, like give it a minute. We're on three yeah. minutes here. Like give her a second. And lo and behold, her heart rate starts coming back up at four minutes. And I was like, we can do a cat two section. <laughs> you can do a cesarean section. I don't, I'm not going to fight you, but I'm not going to be asleep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had to take some type of control oh, back. I'm like, I, you guys have taken the piss long enough. Like I yeah. need to be able to assert myself in some way, shape or form, but it wasn't at risk to my child. I knew what was happening. Yeah. But I just thought I can't, I can't have this experience completely taken out of my hands in this way. But Illy, that must have been so scary for you because you're, 
like the you know the bit of the brain that we need to be in is that kind of primal back brain that isn't logical thinking it isn't navigating big mm. situations and trying to kind of or or even telling people what the right protocol should be to use do you know what i mean so mm. you really weren't held were you in, in as as a as a birthing woman needs to be so that you're not having to kind of you know be in that logical part you mm. know you you didn't get to kind of yeah. just i think the whole thing way. felt so know. unsafe that I yeah. I had to. I was like, I know why I'm not progressing. Obviously, she was she was also asynclitic. If I'm completely honest with you, I don't think that she could she have been a vaginal birth. Maybe, but I think I was probably always destined to have a cesarean. Like, you know, that doesn't really bother me at all. Um, yeah. But I I think the whole thing could have been managed much better. Where I just kind of yeah. was like, okay, this is like the natural progression of things. This is okay, rather than really feeling like I had to watch who was looking after me because I didn't trust what they were doing and you know it just felt a little bit I don't know like it was so and even like she wasn't born for another like hour and a half from the call like there was like five failed attempts at putting in the spinal this kind of stuff is traumatic like that I'm contracting on the table and he still can't get the spinal in I'm not sort of like you know there's no reason for that to not be happening. Five times is a lot. And to this day, I have issues in my back from the spinal. Um, right. And lying there on the table thinking, and I remember thinking, see, you were going to do a, a, a GA section, but actually she's fine, isn't she? An hour and a half later, she's still fine. So I was like, well done, well done. <laughs> you did you did good there. You did all right. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, lying on the table and they actually started the section without letting me know that they were going to start. And I just remember smelling like dead, like burning flesh and being oh, like, what, what's happening? And they went, oh, we started like three minutes ago. I was like, oh, did no one think to tell me? Because this is major surgery. I now can't feel my legs. I can't feel anything and I can't see anything. You're all strangers. You've got masks on and you're just cutting into me and you didn't think that maybe I'd like to know that you were going to do that. It was all very strange. And then she was born and I didn't actually know she was a girl, but I knew like gut knowing, I, I knew she was a girl. So they lifted her over the the drapes and they said, oh, you know, it's a girl, whatever. And I remember just like one tear, one tear came out and I was just very like, I, I then just felt very sad. And they took her over to the resuscitator and all the rest of it. And then they brought her back, double wrapped in a towel and they gave her to my husband. That to me was the most bizarre thing because I constantly like championed skin to skin in theatre. I would take women's arms out of their gowns so that we can make sure we can get the baby in. And, you know, Mm -hmm. but she was like, yeah. And I just felt really like, oh, I'm over it. Like, you know, okay, fine. That's fine. I guess that's what you're doing. I'm lying there and I say to the anaesthetist, how much blood have I lost? And he says, oh, 250 mils. We're closing now. I was like, okay, fine. That's good. And then we're there for like another 20 minutes. I was like, don't take this long to close. Like, what are you doing? And he said, I said, how much blood have I lost now? And he goes, oh, um, 700 mils or 650 mils. But he actually said his first thing was, you're an anxious one, aren't you? Like, don't gaslight me. Don't gaslight oh, me in my no. experience. <laughs> and I was like, my body is open on your table and you're talking to me about being anxious. Like, Yeah, just get on with your job, man. <laughs> I know. Like, it's, it's that kind of smirky laughing at you, poking yeah. fun at you like a bully yeah. would. Exactly. Yeah. It's completely gaslighting me. Yeah. It's saying, what do you mean? Like, why would you... And also just undermining my knowledge. Like, why 
Why does that matter? Because not many people will ask how much blood they've lost because they don't know the relevance of it. But I know the relevance of it. And I also know how long a cesarean section should really be taking if it's normal. Mm. And yeah, and so it was all really strange. And then I held her and it led to a whole series of lots of other things. But I believe that they are from that birth experience. I feel like I've taken up the whole time just speaking about that experience. No, but it's, no it's, it's, really, it's important. It's, it's important so because important. we often talk about this with the fact that how you're, you know, like you, you hear this time and time again, don't you? Well, the baby's healthy, you know, if that's mm. everything's okay. And it makes my blood boil because mm. I have seen firsthand. So with my body work, I had the first time I ever saw it was quite a few years ago. And I had a woman come into the clinic eight months down the line. So her, you know, baby was eight months old. She just didn't feel right. She was having flashbacks. You know, she, to, to be honest, she was undiagnosed PTSD, I think. But when I massaged her body, it was so shocking to me that her body was still, she still had the red line. You know, she still had the red line, which usually disappears within a couple of days at the very most. Um, She still had the kind of bulge, you know, the sacral bulge. And her body was like stuck in fear like it hadn't released from birth and Mm. we did the massage and she had just a big sob and I said to her you know we need to get some talking therapy and she did and then she came back for massages and talking therapy and her body I watched it visibly change in front of my eyes you know as she released but I thought that was so held you know and if, Mm. if she hadn't have come for body work how long would she have been walking around with that trauma you know, physically stuck in her body, let alone mentally. And it just manifests. It manifests in other things. Mm. It doesn't go away just because we don't deal with it. Like it's not, Mm. you know, people say like, oh, give it time, give it time. And it's like some things need more than time. Some things need help. Becky and I did a a bit of training a couple of years ago, actually. We went on a birth trauma day and one of the speakers there was um, Mark Harris, Mm -hmm. the midwife. Yeah. Which was the book that he wrote, Becky? Birthing um, for Blokes Blokes is his his website, isn't it? Anyway, he was talking about something that I found really valuable, actually, which was that, you know, as midwives, we go into a room, work with a woman. We could have two different women come in on different days that birth looks very, very similar to us. And we make, you know, presumptions about how they would feel about their birth, what the outcome was, what it looked like, how it unfolded. And these two births that look from the outside very similar. One of those women is very traumatized and really incredibly distressed afterwards. And the other one says she's had the most empowering experience of her life. It's not for us. That is their truth. That is what is true for them. And it is not for us to assume what their birth experience has been from what we've seen from the other side. I offer um, birth debrief sessions and I always say to people, but don't, don't worry about having to over explain anything to me or like to justify your need for a debrief. I don't Mm. like there's, you don't need to like, yeah, there is nothing that you'll say to me that I'll be like, "Mm, that's not really, I like, Mm -hmm. it's not my business. That is not, it's not my place to judge whether an experience was traumatic for you as an individual. But also what we do is, you know, if we had a patient or something who'd lost two litres of blood and all of this stuff, we'd offer a debrief. We say, you know, we do have this service. And then you've got another patient who had a vaginal birth, baby's fine, blah, 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 blah. We don't offer the service because Mm. clinically 
that looked like it was an okay experience and that looked really traumatic. But where do our where does our perception of trauma come from? Or well, our own biases, our own stereotypes, our own sort of life experiences. And so we we determine whether or not we think that that was traumatic rather than saying to the person, well, how was that for you? And that's the key question, isn't it? So I had a lady in the clinic recently who had a um, really got got to hospital, baby was born within half an hour. So, you know, everybody was congratulating her on this easy, you know, kind of um, amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I said, I said, wow, how was that for you? And she burst into tears. It was really traumatic. It was fast and furious. She felt out of control. You know, she was she was very scared. And so but she she said that that was the first time she'd ever voiced that because everybody was just so excited for the fact that she had this really quick, you know, and easy, for want of a better word, you know, mm. which, I mean, it's never easy, is it? You know, it's sort of... It's called labour for a reason, isn't it? It's not, it's not really <laughs> easy regardless. No, and, 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 you know, and it can be enjoyable if you're supported and you feel safe. And, you know, I had that with my second and it was like a mind-blowing moment for me. I was like, wow, I think I quite enjoyed that actually, you know, because I had so much, yeah, exactly. I had so much support around me and I felt so held and supported and I didn't feel fearful at all once. So how, how was that for you is, is I think is the key, never assume, which takes us to check ourselves mm-hmm. doesn't it sometimes because we mm. all you know we can all carry our own uh I guess bias or opinion of what is a good birth so we need to make sure that we don't totally. bring that what would your yeah. advice be Ali for anyone listening who's thinking oh my goodness this is me it was 10 years ago five years ago and I'm still feeling this way what can they do talk to someone just talk and it doesn't if you don't want to do it with a professional if you can't afford it or whatever then talk to someone close to you you know just 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 say what you want to say and then you might realize that you just needed to get it out or you might realize that you need further support mm-hmm. but in your own time and when you feel safe and comfortable talk and before talking mm-hmm. if you don't want to write it down I always say to people write it down write down what happened write down those things that are really sticking out and are the most sort of triggering for you and just sit with it for a minute mm-hmm. And then see how that makes you feel. You know, take steps towards your healing. And I think it's really important. Accountability is important in the sense of like we can be in charge of our healing. But in order to do that, we have to recognise that perhaps something wasn't right. And so, you know, checking in and saying, do I feel okay? Why am I acting like this? Why am I responding in this way? Why do I find it difficult to speak about the birth? Why am I having night sweats? Why am I having nightmares? Why am I feeling really angry with my partner, you know, what What are all of these feelings? And you check in and you say, well, hold on, maybe something wasn't right. Mm. And then yep. we can start the process of, of healing and we all need to do it with most situations yep. in our lives. That's really useful. It's really helpful. So on that note, mm. what would be your top tips for a new mum, Illy, any new mum going into motherhood? So my top tips, how many can I get <laughs> my top (laughs) tips would be motherhood is like transitional it's continuous transitions and we need to become like water and you flow with those transitions and you say okay yeah I'm going into another transition and another transition if we become rigid and are like I don't like this it's not working for me the transition still needs to happen and it still will happen so you can either drag you with it or you can flow with it, right? So that's a good, I like that, a good analogy. All of those transitions like 
God, that first, that fourth trimester is completely transitional and it's not going to be particularly easy. I'm not going to lie to you, but it is transitional. And by being transitional, it means it moves. So it won't always be like that. So that's the first one. And the second tip I'd say, the mother that says that she's really got it all together in that moment might actually have it all together, but there will come a time when she also won't. We can't keep it together forever. Like these kids can be relentless. And so (laughs) at that moment, it's like, okay, yeah, she's got it together. But I'm feeling like it's a bit difficult. Okay. I might find there will be another time when I find it easier and she may not find it as easy. Comparison is the thief of joy. So live in your moment Mm -hmm. and whatever's happening with you, it does get better, it gets easier, it gets different. And you will, you will be okay. Can I give one third one? Yeah, I do. Um, The third one is it really is okay to not be okay. It's okay. There's no shame in it. We need to start normalizing our own responses to things and recognizing that they are valid. Admitting to yourself that you're not okay is probably the most empowering thing you will do in your motherhood journey because it leads to seeking help and Mm -hmm. correcting perhaps mistakes or healing and overall better well-being. Those are my three. Thank you, Lily. That's lovely. You champion self-care, which you know is our jam because we wrote two books on it. You wrote two books on it. (laughs) And obviously it's completely to do with what you do as well because it's all, you know, it's pregnancy and it's postnatal. It's like maternity life. And I saw that you popped a post up the other day, which I really liked saying that we have almost been sort of coerced into thinking about self-care as being this luxury thing and it's actually about those little tiny moments and one of the things I loved that you wrote down was it's about having dinner in peace yeah you know it's about and it really can be a five minute unit of your day that you have cause over that you have power over can you talk to us a little bit more about that okay so self-care really bugs me when anything has been um you know, it's it's normal. It's normal to look after yourself. It's really normal to prioritise yourself. Let's stop putting it up here as this unattainable, mm. unachievable thing because you can't afford to go and get your nails done or you can't afford to get your hair done or you don't get to go on really nice holidays or like your kid doesn't leave you for three minutes so that you can go and have a very long walk and get some fresh air. Like this is, for some people that doesn't happen. My daughter was in the sling for nine months every day like I didn't get that time she napped in the sling she fed in the sling everything was in the sling so for me seeing other people being like oh finally babies on solids I can get some real self-care and I've gone out and I've gone shopping or whatever and I'm thinking oh I can't even leave her for two seconds and you know this is obviously social media has a real big effect on that and how we um, perceive self-care and how we can show off about it or you know speak about it it's not necessarily even showing off it's just speaking about it really it's you know sharing it if that's what you want to do but the reality is self-care is just that it's caring for yourself however you deem it to be or what in whatever way you deem it to be um Mm. and so actually having a hot cup of tea that's a bloody luxury when you've got a baby like that that is like if I get up like five minutes before the baby or 10 minutes before and I can really just enjoy that moment and center my thoughts and prepare myself for the day if I can eat by myself or if I can come and record a podcast for an hour without a toddler at my feet this for me is self-care speaking to adults like you know (laughs) 
this is great. Like, and yeah. I think if we start to really normalize the tiny bits of self-care, we take the pressure off and we encourage other people to seek self-care in whatever way they can that works with their life and their individual situations rather than making it about luxury packages and, you know, um, unaffordable things or even things that don't suit you as a person. Like I'm, I'm going to the hairdressers and just being like, why am I here? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, who needs to look at themselves in the mirror for that? Do you long, know what right? I mean? I'm like, ah, <laughs> yeah, I just don't care. Like, this is not my form of self care yet. Mm-hmm. I found myself caught up in what other people say self care is, and I'm here yeah. doing it and I'm paying mm-hmm. for it. Like, you know, oh, goodness, yeah. Bubs, I we hear had... you. Like, I-, I love an episode of Shits Creek and a Ripple. And quite frankly, yeah. if I can get those 25 <laughs> minutes to myself, I am winning at life. Exactly. <laughs> when our when our um, postnatal book came out, I had one of the funniest emails that I loved was from a client of mine who said, because we'd had during a massage, I said, try and do one nice thing for yourself every single day. Right? It doesn't matter what it is. It might just be having a ripple or it might, you know, be having a poo in peace. Yeah. And uh, she she emailed me saying, you're going to love this one. Out of the book, the best thing I did for myself today was push my pile back inside so it wasn't bothering me. And I was like, there you go, babes. You looked after yourself. You did. And you feel She's better, like, And by the way, I didn't know how to do that until I read it in your book. And I was like, you're welcome. But can I just I, um, say, your book, for me, that book was like a Bible of sorts. And it was, I, you know, just opened the bits that, I, that were relevant to me. But it was clear, concise, and just felt really easy. So both of you creating something like that has been it's magic it's magic and it's not it's not out there and it's what we need it's what all birthing people need professionals or not we just need a bit of a bit of a hug (laughs) your maternal burnout post we shared Mm. on instagram and it got such a big response i think it resonated with so many mums i just think you know, again, it's something that's not talked about, the fact that it is hard, you know, and and you do need to rest. And Alexis and I had the honour of being, you know, trained by professionals or or in cultures where um, people go to bed and they rest and they get really looked after. I mean, Lecky had an amazing time in Morocco where, Mm. you know, she experienced the the postnatal hammam ritual and kind of came back going, what are we doing here? You know, it's so important, isn't it? You know, and I was like, the way- Becky, they don't just they don't just do it once or twice. They do it for a month after the babies are born, <laughs> and we wonder why they have fifteen children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it's yeah. so joyous. It's such a celebration. You're held so tightly. Yeah. Mm. So my community here in in Norwich, where I live, we are a Muslim community, big Muslim community, and we are Sufi Muslims. So a lot of our practices come from Morocco. Um, here uh-huh. we do practice the 40 days postnatal I didn't because I was like well I'm not going to because I don't need to and um, I'm fine and I keep myself to this day I will never do that again yeah. Hilly um, you missed out I missed out I was dragging my little baby to the osteopath at five days old like I oh, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to but like funny enough you should have someone rubbing a eucalyptus all over your body right? that's what you need exactly. not and that's the what osteopath. my family was saying they were like where are you going I was like no I just need to I just need to and I will say to you that was all part of my traumatic experiences and what they were yeah. doing to me they were making me be like I need to take control of something yeah mm. you go into hypervigilance don't you when you're in trauma you exactly. kind of like you need to be like on the whole time yeah like what's wrong with her why is she like this? I need to go get her fixed and you know it was a lot like yeah. that but today I am actually making 
dinner for someone who had a baby two weeks ago. Um, the rotor's gone round. It's my turn. Oh, um, so brilliant. we are all filling her fridge for the next six weeks with meals for her and her family. And it is just nourishment and what we should be doing, um, you know, for all birthing people in whatever way, shape or form we can. It doesn't have to be a meal if you can't cook a meal. But like, how about we stop buying babies rattles and blankets and buy mothers, you know, bath salts and buy them healing teas and, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that instead. Um, And so, yeah, like, I think all of these things would contribute towards less rates of maternal burnout thing about this Instagram page is obviously I didn't really start it for any reason other than to share my own experiences. And what it has done is it is really showing me what is lacking and what is needed. People are just really struggling. You know, they're struggling. Mm. That post, the amount of people that were just underneath going, yep, 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 yep. And it was just, you know, and I thought to myself, yeah, yeah, this is, we're getting it wrong. We're getting it wrong. Mm. What, what what is it that we need to be doing? Oh, I got some ideas, but who knows? You know, I'm one person. Um, <laughs> I'm excited, Ali. We'll You're see. one wonderful person. So let's see what happens. <laughs> we love your pink squares because, you know, we need m- more people educating more people, you know, on Instagram. There's, there's a lot of, it's, it's a great platform if you have stuff to say and we need people to kind of use that platform to, to kind of educate others. Um, and I, we loved, you know, your post on trying to make maternity care safer for black birthing women. Mm. I mean, that's something we all, you know, we know the statistics, right? And we all feel very passionate about it. Um, and you and I really had this conversation already that I found it ludicrous that my husband, who works for a film company, they have to do unconscious bias testing regularly. It's part of their you know, their thing, they do it once a year and it flags up racism and genderism and ableism and all the things. And we all need to keep checking in with ourselves. We all need to make sure that things that we've been fed throughout the years that get deep rooted, that we unpick and we work on. And in the birth world, I never have had to do anything like that. Have have you guys at all? Nope. No. It should be part of your training as a midwife. It should, you know, it should, it should be... I set up the course, my masterclass, which is in a few weeks, because I'm like, gosh, okay, this isn't being offered for anyone, but no, you need it. You like, you 100% yeah. need it. The statistic on black maternal mortality is rising. Like people aren't understanding. It is rising. It is not declining. It has risen since 1998, where it was at three times more to 2018 to 2019 to five times more and we are heading towards six times more mm-hmm. what is going on and where does where do we start with it and mm-hmm. there's a lot of talk and a lot of campaigns and things like that that put a lot of the onus on the woman and the birthing person mm-hmm. and I don't think that's where it is in fact I know that's not where it is no and you know I'm like right well I'm not going to be blaming black birthing people for their deaths. I'm not doing that. I can't, I can't participate in that. And nor am I going to keep shouting at them, say it louder, say it louder, say it louder. Having been working where women and birthing people are saying things louder and we still do what we want. So it's not about saying it louder. You know, that's not what it's about. It's about getting those people who are caring for them to understand their own behaviours because then Absolutely. that would really make a difference. They wouldn't have to say it so loud. 
you know yeah why should you have to shout to be heard in such a vulnerable time I think I think exactly as you were saying I think go back to your training to be a midwife your training to be a doctor your training to be a nurse your you know you go into the hospital to be a healthcare assistant and and sort of before you even can face any clients or patients you know we can't do that without our criminal records I think we should also yeah. have to be able to show them our our biased records as well yeah Yeah. definitely and Barney said it was really helpful he said you know it's a timed response so it kind of times your response to the question so in the hesitation I guess it flags up so it's not an actual science but it flags up you know you actually took quite a while to kind of answer this here's some suggested reading you know here are some suggested articles that may help you with this and he said god it was brilliant it was so interesting Mm. for him because he's like I want to be a better person I want to unpick my biases I want to work through this shit so actually bring it like let me do this do stuff you know so that is? I can you know there are so many people that won't book onto my course or courses similar because they're scared of being told they're racist and it's like right that's not really how this works like yeah unconscious bias doesn't work like that conscious bias does but that can yeah. also be unpicked you know we yeah. can look at what is what is going on here everyone's biases come from their own experiences. And so it's, you know, it's important to recognise that not everyone has had the same exposures and the same education and things like that, but it can all be unpicked. Mm -hmm. But you have to be willing to do that. You have to say, well, I actually recognise that I might be part of the problem. Take the ego out of the problem, out of the issue and say, right, well, I might be part of the problem here. Um, Yeah. And what can I do to make the experience better for birthing people and for people generally? Like, you know, those biases aren't just in healthcare. Those are your biases. They come across in every aspect of your life. Yeah. I love you. You you often talk about, and this isn't just about that, actually. It's you, This covers a lot of the subjects you discuss on your Instagram pages. They're always about being curious. And I watched a, I can't remember, it must have been an Insta stories or something. And I think you were actually talking in this particular one about you know, women feeling empowered and getting to the bottom as to why certain decisions are being made. And I remember you saying, you know, be like a curious toddler, be annoyingly <laughs> curious like a toddler. Everything that comes up, say, and why, and why, and yeah. why, and yeah. why, yeah. until you are happy with what you're hearing. 100%. I, I love thought, that. I'm going to use that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing my classes, Lily. When they do it, they're like, yeah. oh, oh. Because actually, we can end up just going, okay. And you know your guy's going, nah, this isn't right. Yeah, yeah. But toddlers don't have that. They don't, you know, they just go and they keep going and they keep going until eventually, like, they go, you know, fine, you know? (laughs) And we should do that. Why do we stop doing that? Why do do we stop being curious? Why do we stop wanting to get to the bottom of things? Because someone who is more educated or senior or whatever Mm. tells us that that's enough information. It's never yeah. enough until you decide it's enough. I like Bye. that. I'm going to use that too. Thanks, Illy. Absolutely. <laughs> I feel like this amazing midwife, Illy, says, behave like a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> Illy, we always finish our podcast with the same question. We're going to ask yeah. you now. If you could add a note to pop inside a mother box, heading out to a brand new mum, your best bit of advice on it, what would it be? Allow yourself to feel what you're feeling. I like that. It's as simple as that. And you can unpick it as much as you want. But whatever those feelings are, they're they're valid. It's simple, but very, very important. And it goes back to that whole, you know, what's true for you? 
yeah. yeah. your instinct. Lily, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been mm, absolutely thank brilliant. Me. Thanks so much, Lily. Thank you. Thanks once again to the wonderful Illy for joining us today and sharing her experience and wisdom with us. If you've been touched by today's episode and you'd like to share your experience with us, do get in touch over on our Instagram page and also see our show notes for more services available to support you. If you enjoyed this episode and want to know more about the work that we do, look out for our books, The Little Book of Self-Care for New Mums and The Little Book of Self-Care for Mums-to-Be, where we will talk further about birth, parenthood, relationships and much more. Join us again next week for more chats with another amazing guest. See you next time on Notes from the Mother Box. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.